Welcome to this episode of Footnotes. Today we're talking to Lauren Taylor of RealtyHaven.org. And Lauren's done it all when it comes to real estate. She's bought, she's sold, she's represented buyers and sellers. She's even worked with institutions who are deploying millions and then sometimes billions of dollars of capital into the real estate space. We had a great conversation on what it was like to build a career when you had very little experience and also how to take that sort of professional arc of a career and turn it into something that can give back to people um, who, who need a lot of help when it comes to housing. Check it out. So welcome Lauren Taylor of uh, Haven Home uh, here in Columbia. Um, you know, and just to kind of get right into it, we had an interesting conversation to set to set this conversation up. And, you know, you've been involved, almost had a lifelong career in real estate, whether it's buying things, selling things, helping people buy or sell things, uh, but also helping investors uh, do things with real estate to either uh, make more money or to, or to just get better returns. Um, but why don't we just start at the beginning of kind of how you got into real estate and sort of what some of that pathway looked like? Yeah, uh, so I started about 15 years ago. Um, it was an interesting entry into real estate. We started a preservation company, which is a really fancy way of saying we renovated foreclosed houses. Um, we do winterizations, clean them out, give cash for keys, that kind of thing. And uh, the that part of the business I found interesting, mainly because foreclosures were starting to uptick at the time, uh, but it got over whelmed very quickly. So a lot of people were interested in that business. Contractors who had lost work during the housing crisis kind of flooded that industry. And uh, so I decided to get my real estate license. I had contacts with asset managers, so I thought I could list and sell foreclosed properties. Um, so I got my license and started working um, with banks to list foreclosed homes. Uh, that was an interesting endeavor, but uh, not very rewarding overall. Um, I found it to be a little kind of mundane, I guess. What was mundane? I mean... It's, it's just paperwork, realistically. Um, so, and for the REO agents out there, I am not throwing shade <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, it's just, it's one of those industries that was, I, I didn't find it challenging enough. I wanted to learn a little more. Um, and actually read, stum stumbled across an article, I think in the Wall Street Journal or somewhere, uh, that was about Blackstone starting Invitation Homes, which was the first... Uh, and would be the largest single-family rental aggregator in the country. And so Blackstone is, uh, I think, a large private equity firm. That's right. So in other words, they had raised some money from investors, right. and they wanted to start buying into this particular asset class. Okay. And for people that don't know, uh, single-family was not an asset class until the housing crisis. It didn't exist um, at large scale. And there was a lot of people who thought it couldn't exist at large scale because it was uh, overly complicated from an operational standpoint. If I'm buying multifamily property, I can manage it all in one location. It's an apartment complex and it all kind of goes together. I can have on-site staff and it's much easier to manage. Sure. Um, kind owning, of all in one place. Exactly. Owning thousands or hundreds of thousands of single-family homes spread out in across very wide geographic locations seem to be... Uh, something that people didn't think was going to be an actual viable asset class. Um, about what time, when were you starting to do that work with the single family? This is about uh, 2009 okay. is, when, is when I really started doing research into the industry. Now, uh, I would love to say I just, you know, jumped right in and built a career, um, but it was a little bit more complicated than that. Since the industry was new, I kind of 
to try to find a way to get my foot in the door. Um, there weren't many people that really even knew that it existed at that point. So I traveled, uh, I heard of a conference that was coming up in Miami that's called IMN, and it still goes on now. And so I traveled down to Miami to try to meet people that were getting into the industry. And at the time, it was really all private equity guys. Um, a lot of, you had a big exodus of people that were in private equity that moved from, you know, raising money around multifamily or income producing properties uh, in a different sector to, to doing single family or raising money around that. So let's back up for a second. You know, it, it sounds like you, you had developed a, a, a career, you had gone in a direction, you, you saw this opportunity with, with single family, you, you saw that a lot of money was beginning to flow or, or starting to flow into those opportunities, as they say. Yeah. You traveled to Miami to try to meet people who were doing these things. But on that parallel path, what, how were you, what was your day job then? How were you supporting yourself? Um, what did that look like in the midst of learning and traveling and, and trying to put something together? Uh, it's definitely not as glamorous as it sounds. Um, when I when I give the story from a from a surface level, it feels you know very uh, elitist. I you know traveled to Miami and you know uh, met a bunch of wealthy people that were doing real estate. Realistically, I was in my early 20s and um, brand new, had no background in the industry whatsoever. Uh, the first conference I went to, people thought I was a booth girl because um, there were very few women at the conference. Okay. Uh, yeah. Really no women attendees other than booth, uh, booth girls, realistically. Uh, they're doing much better now, I am if you're listening to this. Uh, but they, I really had to uh, to struggle to figure out how to support myself during that period of time. So I, uh, I worked in retail, did uh, Verizon Wireless, AT&T, uh, waited tables, bartended, um, had a lot of side gigs, did multiple marketing. If you can name a side gig that is viable to try to make a, an extra dollar, I, I probably did it. Yeah. I just think that's important to, to bring out. And I remember when we were having the conversation prior to this and you, and you described those things, I think that there are a lot of people out there that, that may have been where you were about a decade ago where they've built up some expertise in something, they see some opportunities, but they have rent to pay and cell phone bills and car insurance. And it's like, how do they pursue one while, you know, keeping the plates spinning? Yeah. And I, and I just like that part of your story about how you, you were doing those things, uh, but, but you were still just scratching away at what you thought could be a great opportunity in a career. So yeah. anyway. Just. Yeah, and I, I had a lot to learn too. It was, um, you know, how do I feed myself and, and make sure that I am uh, have a car to drive and can function in society? And then how do I also learn about an industry while not getting paid to be in it? Um, because at that point in time, I was working commission only. So if I didn't have a client that was buying something, then I couldn't make money. Um, and I. I was young, so I really didn't understand consulting, uh, but in all fairness, I didn't have the background to, to leverage myself as a consultant then either. So I was trying to figure out how do I learn about this and also uh, survive. <laughs> so was that conference that you attended in Miami, was that sort of, was, was that a breakthrough moment or did that happen a little bit later? Uh, what I found in general is that everything is, 
is relational and it takes time to build. And so showing up consistently, uh, people just started to know me as the South Carolina girl. Um, so not many people were doing single family at the time. And there, there was no one really coming from South Carolina to, to these conferences because the, the large investors weren't attracted to our markets initially. Um, people might not be aware, but we have a, a pretty difficult tax rate to to deal with on I've the rental that, side, yes. yeah. <laughs> um, so we're about three times higher than than our surrounding states in, in property tax for rental properties, and uh, so it took that. That's really why at first I focused on how do I become a good analyst and understand the financial fundamentals of the business first, um, because I needed to know that to show them how I could still uh, make South Carolina a viable investment for them. So it sounds like, you know, going way back in, in your um, the preservation uh, point of your career, you, you were literally sleeves rolled up inside homes doing that work. Then, you know, things happen and you, you see this opportunity in single family and you see where large institutional investors with, with probably, I think, hundreds of millions at the time, if not billions of dollars oh, yeah, being yeah. allocated to buying homes to, to rent to people. And you developed... Oh, and you had the um, retail experience with real estate, buying and selling, mm -hmm. and then you developed this analytical skill. Mm -hmm. When did you begin to put all three of those together for for yourself? So I was able to, uh, a large fund came into South Carolina, which is American Homes for Rent, and, and when they came, it was kind of a snowball effect because the industry still to this day has uh, a follow-up mentality. So. Um, where the big guys go, the little guys follow. Um, and so I knew that my, my best niche market would be in small funds, baby funds, that were like sub $100 million. So if they, if they had $100 million or less to spend... It still sounds like a lot of money. It but. sounds like a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> Real estate physical assets, it's not as much, as right. you would think. But um, we, I focused on them. So I knew it was typically, you know, some guys in a shoebox in, uh, in New York that had raised a few million dollars and uh, were wanting to buy properties. And so I stepped in with them and helped um, helped a couple small groups get their feet off the ground. Um, and even from early on in those relationships, I quickly found out they had a lot of operational difficulties. Um, and that really stems from the fact that if I, if I am buying real estate from a distance, regardless of what type of asset it is, if I'm sitting in South Carolina, I wanna buy a property in Wisconsin, um, I, I need to find someone that can, you know, make sure that they look at the property to tell me that everything's okay with it, uh, if there's anything wrong with it that can fix it, um, and then someone that can manage it for me uh, intelligently and, and keep the asset up to a certain standard. And uh, so I was only doing at that point in time just the acquisition aspect. So I was, uh, I was focused on helping them find something to buy. But naturally, because I was their main point of contact, they leaned on me to figure out, okay, how do we find contractors and otherwise? Um, and luckily, my partner uh, in business and in, in life, he, he was on the construction side. So we started the preservation company together. And when, uh, when we started to get into this aspect of the business, I was first meeting clients. Um, they were asking about you know, renovations or diligent services. And so I pulled him in because that's not my area of expertise. Uh, still to this day, it's not my area of expertise. But uh, I know enough to be dangerous. That's about about it. Um, so I pulled him in, and he would help them on you know the renovation or construction side. And um, that that really started initially the foundation of 
how do we provide a better level service across the board that makes it easier for uh, for the investors and um, and the people that are in the properties? Distance management at times can cause issues for the residents as well. Um, so it's about like high quality management across the board. Um, so at that point in time, we were kind of help, both helping clients that we would bring in um, and. Then we started to kind of span out. He went and worked for traditional funds um, and one that was a larger fund locally. And I uh, I decided to, you know, kind of continue down the pathway. Found a, um, a company out of Irvine, California that was trying to scale here. I opened them up in the Southeast. And uh, then about, so this is about 2015 or so. Um, and realized a couple of months into the contract with them that I was going to to want to go out on my own and uh, build what in my mind I pictured at the time as a full service operations company. Uh, and that just means that we would do all aspects of the business for large clients. We would source, renovate, and rent out. So, you know, you've seen it all, if you will, by this <laughs> sure. point, you know, yeah. from, from the very start to sort of the, the very end and the end being where, where institutional real estate investors want to put large sums of money to work in a particular asset class. Right. In the intro, you know, I introduced you as as the um, as the founder of Haven Home. Right. Which is a nonprofit. Yes. So, and, and you're, you're starting to light up now, yeah. so that's good. Um, so you've seen it all, and, and you, you've become a total professional with this hard-won experience, kind of on your own dime, so to speak. You're supporting yourself on the side. Uh, of course, it got to the point where you were able to, to, I know, make a living through that. But now the nonprofit around real estate. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I uh, founded the, the for-profit companies in 2017, and uh, that was the original goal. I think I made the joke to you, too. My, my dog's name is REIT, which stands for Real Estate <laughs> Investment Trust, if people don't know what that means. Uh, but I was very laser focused on, I'm gonna have my own fund. Um, I, I dropped out of college to start uh, our first company. And so I never, um, I knew, kind of, I didn't have the pedigree. People say you have the three Ps, um, personal skills, professional skills, and pedigree. And I didn't really have the pedigree, but I knew that I could build a pedigree through, uh, through experience. And uh, so I was like, well, if I start these operations companies and show our ability to scale um, and, uh, and operate at a high level, then I can go out and raise money and start my own fund. And so we, we did attract a large client in 2017. Uh, we, grew very quickly with them. It was uh, kind of wide open. Uh, took on 116 units with them initially, and through 2018 and 2019, we uh, we bought right at 2,500 homes. Um, and that was in 14 different MSAs between South Carolina and Georgia. Um, and it was one of the worst and best periods of my career. I think we, we got to experience all the things that I wanted to experience. I hadn't uh, hadn't gotten to experience the breaking levels of operations at that point in time, um, where you hit scale levels that kind of break down and you have to rebuild again. Yeah. What were you seeing though that that kind of brought Haven Home into into your mind? I mean, were, were, was there sort of a negative side to some of these things that that sort of pro provoked this? 
So realistically, any time that you insert financial markets into an asset class, uh, inflation happens. And this this really stems from the securitization market. Um, when, and, and, and meaning yeah. that whenever you throw a lot of money yeah, into a, a particular money. asset, then, then people that may own those assets think they can ask for higher prices et cetera, et cetera, and it makes everything more expensive. That's what, I guess that's what and you're the, sort of referring to. The the financial modeling for funds got in, increasingly more complex because you could layer financing for the first time. And and most people, you, if I am an investor and I want, uh, I want to deliver a certain level of return, these funds are typically structured. For example, you give me a million dollars, I'm gonna give you a certain return per year. And I'm also at the end, when we sell everything, I'm gonna get 70%, you're gonna get 30% of what we call like the waterfall on the back end. The, the whole goal is to make that waterfall as big as possible and to increase my IRR, my internal rate of return throughout the course of, of the fund. When they layered in uh, financing, this allowed us to kind of ramp up um, the rates of return pretty significantly. and. Uh, but what that did was it caused um, what I would consider to be faults and, and uh, forced inflation. And so we would see, uh, for example, if I am going to get a loan on something, whether it's my house or whether it's a big package of uh, rental properties, the, the whole idea behind that loan is the bank is saying that they're going to lend it to me with the idea that that asset will be worth more money. Um, and so in order for me to capitalize on getting some of my money back out of that loan, then I need for the property value to go up pretty significantly. And so there became a lot of um, push to raise rents because if I, just like any other investment purchase, if my... Um, if I'm qualifying based on my debt to income ratio, like I would when I buy a house, then the income on the property significantly changes what I can qualify for in rent or in uh, in my loan. And so you would see people that were pushing rents and the rental inflation, if you look at 2020, for example, uh, across the board, you had about a 30 to 35% increase in rental values during a pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Um, and this is because most of your readily available um, single family assets are controlled by institutional funds at this point. They'll argue and say they only own about 1% of the marketplace, which is true, but they have more turnover um, and they produce more assets a year. So it's sort of like, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, usually around the holidays, um, in our family, some pretty uh, epic games of Monopoly break out. Yeah. Like old school Monopoly with like Park Place and Baltic and all that. And, and it's what, it, what it seems like you're describing is sort of monopoly just on steroids. Yes. In other words, people have bought these properties, they've improved them, and as we know in the game, the more improvements, the more rent when you land on there, and then pretty soon when everyone's got hotels, people start dropping out of the game because they're bankrupt. Yes. And so you're seeing this play out in a real market with real people, with real money involved. And well, and if everyone that's looking at real estate going like, how are, value so out of control. When you have a large influx of cash into any given asset class, it will force inflation. And uh, that is by nature. This was shown, you know, with Zillow, Zillow's recent 
uh, debacle that was going on. It got a lot of media attention when realistically institutional funds have been uh, doing similar things in the space for a long period of time. Right. And that's because um, Zillow was getting into the business of Purchasing. purchasing and things like that, not just telling you what your house was worth or yes. showing you cool pictures. They, uh, they wanted to get into the Monopoly game. And, so their, and their algorithm was off, um, and so they were overpaying for houses. But they, it was very strategic. If I buy four properties in a neighborhood and the fifth property I intentionally buy at a higher price, um, that price is then going to influ influence the appraisals of the four properties that I already owned. Um, so there, there is a, a gain to be had there. Uh, but even more dangerously, you have this inflation within single-family rentals especially, and, and the rental class in general. Um, and what we've seen now is that you have about 50% of the country that is cost-burdened, um, meaning that they pay 50% or more of their income towards the rent, um, which is non-sustainable um, at at very best and catastrophic at at worst. What's that like in the southeast? I mean, if the nationwide is at 50%, is it is it a little more um, livable, dare I say, here in the southeast? Or is it it's is still, also creeping up? Uh, it's still, I mean, you've had this big interest in workforce housing. And uh, the interest in What does in that mean when yeah. people say that? Uh, workforce housing would be considered, you know, your, uh, your blue collar working uh, class. So regular people. In other words, so is that a? But is that also? I think in, in if I pretend like I'm an analyst, yeah. Does that mean that the rental rates on workforce housing is at a typically lower percentage of a certain level of income? Meaning, if we're talking about a household income of sixty thousand dollars a year, that it's going to come in workforce housing would be considered thirty five percent of that, or how does that? It is, should is there be. a measurable um, that, that helps us really, understand that? There really is no uh, no formula now. Um, it is because of the control of inventory, you can set your own pricing. It's, it's so like it's, any other market. So it's one of these great undefined labels. Yeah. Um, and so it, they will push the market to what the market can stand. Um, and there's also strategies like if I, if I believe that the market rent for this property in the area is $1,000 a month, um, most are going to want us to try 1300 to see if we can accomplish 1300 If we can't in a month, then we're going to give a free month's rent. So now we're 60 days of vacancy, right? Uh, realistically, I may on paper have 1300 but in, in all actuality, once I stretch out that amount across the remaining months, 10 months of the year, I'm not actually achieving 1300 um, This is where asset management-minded people have a differing opinion than finance-minded people. Um, and because theirs is all about leverage. So on my rent roll, it looks like I'm getting 1300 which means my loan can qualify for 1300 in rent um, instead of 1000 in rent. So like I think like I'm hearing you say, all that translates into people, you know, Housing is, is a basic necessity of life. I mean, you know, food, water, clothing. Human right. Yeah. Shelter. So so shelter costs, which we all need to have, um, seem like they're they're going up. Yes. And and that they're certainly, you know, through income inequality and all kinds of things that we see in, in, in our society as well as others, this housing cost continues to creep up. Is that where you come in? Yeah, so um, the I think the tricky part here is that you have you have to figure out um, how to marry the two things together. Uh, the world doesn't run without 
uh, capital investment and realistically doesn't run without private equity. And uh, if you had, if you go back to 2018, uh, 2018 was when Fannie Mae backed single family rentals. Um, and this is when, if now if you look at the graph, we're, we're like this. Um, so rent rates are going up, home values are going up in a very steady increase. Um, anyone that's tried to buy a house in the past sure. year uh, has experienced that. But what I needed to find was a, a, a market hack that would give me a true market-based solution or a way that the industry could make money um, while also accomplishing what the goal was. And so I went through a bunch of different model hacks, and what I came up with is a combination of a for-profit and a non-profit relationship. Uh, the nonprofit needs to own the assets um, because what I wanted to ensure is that regardless of what happens to me in the future, that the integrity of the mission is always protected. And that is impossible to do in for-profit structures. I fought this battle with everyone I know in private equity um, who says, you know, just go the traditional fund route. You can still, you know, insulate. You can do an evergreen model. You know, you can do an ESG. You can do all of these things that, that say that I'm doing something good. But realistically, it, if it got big enough, um, it would be, in my opinion, corrupted in some way. Um, and so I wanted the assets to be insulated, um, which gave me an interesting challenge of how do how do I fund a nonprofit? Um, so let me stop you there. So you're saying the, the nonprofit would own the homes that would be rented. That's right. And if I'm understanding you correctly, because a not-for-profit owned it, it, it didn't have, I guess, the financial pressure of appreciation at sort of a above-market rate. In other words, the, the asset itself could could remain in the nonprofit yes. without that sort of return expectation. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah. So we, there's no pressure to deliver an increased rate of return. Uh, there's no pressure to push home values. There's no pressure to push rents. Um, the, the model in and of itself, one, you get a the tax benefit of a nonprofit, which is um, in South Carolina, the majority of other states, you pay no property tax or very little property tax, which increases your, sure. your overall return profile. And so I was trying to figure out how do I fund this, and I tried a bunch of different uh, models, debt funds and all the things you can think of, uh, and settled on Regulation A's. And uh, Regulation A's have gained... Uh, interest over the years and they are allowed to be used within a nonprofit structure. There's very few vehicles available to nonprofits to raise capital. Um, and Regulation A's I think are one of the greatest and newest forms of that. TechSoup did a Reg A. Um, there's been quite a few nonprofits that have successfully accomplished them. We will be the first to accomplish a Reg A for asset purchases. Um, but it what it does is it allows us to deliver a rate of return to investors um, without having to give a waterfall in the back end. There's no exit. Um, it is long-term, our ideal clients will be pension funds, um, people that want long-term investment profiles uh, that are stable and secure. Um, so it's sort of like a fixed income investment? Yeah, it's going to stay. You're going to get a nice steady 6-7% a year return, um, and it will stay that way forever. Um, these assets will will remain. It It is and will be the most stable asset class in the country. So it sounds like, you know, and again, I know we, we've simplified this and people can find you on the internet to, to learn more about this, but, you know, you have this nonprofit that, that purchases homes and without that pressure of appreciation, it sounds like you're able to keep market rent, or not only the pressure of appreciation, but also the added cost of property taxes. Right. Because in South Carolina, we have, I think it's a 6% rate on 
property taxes as opposed to a 4% rate if it's owner occupied. So you cut a couple of thousand dollars a year per home out of, out of the, off the uh, expense side. And it sounds like that's how you're able to keep the market rents at affordable rates. Yeah, it cuts your operational expenditures by like more than half. It's like a third. Wow. Okay, and then and then you're able though to go out to the to the world of money, so to speak, so to speak, and attract capital by saying you're investing in this part of my company, which is which is for profit, which you know just gets those steady cash flows because again, shelter is a necessity of life. That's right. <laughs> it stands the reason that people are going to want to rent these homes and, and be in these homes. Um, what about you know you hear a lot of people talking about sort of the dream of home ownership. It sounds like you've got it for for you know, in, in cases where people are not owning the homes, but um, what about for home ownership in terms of making that more affordable? Yeah, so the um, the ideal here is that uh, we're starting out with a particular model, and so I have what my first iteration will be and kind of what I see it progressing into. And the, the initial iteration is one, to provide affordable rental levels. Um, all of our properties will also accept voucher. We have a, a significant voucher issue in our country. And we manage for the housing authority on the property uh, management side now, for-profit side, because um, I kind of leaned into affordable fully last year. Um, and what I've experienced there is, uh, and just based on statistics, if anyone's interested, it's like the National Low-Income Housing uh, Coalition is, uh, if you do that, abbreviation.org. Uh, they have a lot of data there that I think is really, uh, really beneficial for people to see. One, it talks about um, the, the income problem problem that we have. Um, in South Carolina, to afford a modest two-bedroom apartment, you, you have to make 17 something an hour. You're like right at $18 an hour, um, which people aren't putting that into perspective, I don't think. Um, and so the people that are on getting some form of voucher, uh, voucher doesn't mean that they're paying all of your rent. They may just be paying a small portion of it. Um, but we are, uh, we're recycling about 60% of our vouchers every year. And um, What does that mean? So if I go and I apply to get some form of rental assistance and I qualify for Section 8, HAP vouchers, VA vouchers, whatever, uh, they are going to give me a window of time, a small window of time, let's say 60, 90 days, to, to identify a place that will accept my voucher. Uh, institutional funds don't accept voucher. Uh, most of your institutional multifamily owners don't accept voucher. And so they struggle to find someone that will. And if they can't find someone, it's taken away from you and it's given to the next person. Um, and so- In other words, if you can't identify within that period, yeah. then they just, you're out of line and they go to the next person in line. And, and this should be concerning for, for any taxpayer um, because that means that, that all of this money that's allocated to this industry every year is not being utilized um, it, because there's no assets to put them into. Um, so we have a wait list just in Richland County of about 6,000 individuals um, that- Wait, in Richland County, 6,000 individuals. Yeah. And we could buy in perpetuity with this model and never run out of houses. You're, you are at a national level, you're a, at a 7 million unit shortage, just in low income uh, voucher based properties. Wow. Yeah. 7 million. 7 million. And it's probably not just where you have one individual living in each unit. That's right, yeah. Um, it, most of the time we we are uh, servicing families in, in units. And um, so for for us then it is, how do we 
How do we structure? We're focused on two main things: the financial structuring and then the nonprofit structuring. And the nonprofit needs to needs to be able to do things for individuals that actually further their progression in, in their lives. It's it's one thing to put them in a home and just say like, okay, it's affordable and now you're taken care of. Uh, but we also are, are very focused on building social programs. And so the money that we're raising um, for from a nonprofit perspective um, is just for social programs. Um, so donations that come to Haven Home go towards building those programs. The money that we raise for investors goes towards buying assets. Have you found where the network that you spent years developing by going to those conferences and getting mistaken for the booth girl and then finally yes. coming into your own, um, are, are you finding that, um, are you finding some donors? From, from from that group? Yeah. Um, you don't have to name names and things. Sure. I'm just wondering, you know, were you able to kind of repurpose, you know, you, you developed a network for professional reasons. It worked. Yeah. It took time, but but it worked. Are you now seeing where where you can go back to that network for this this sort of heart project that you're doing? And, and also, um, not that it's just all about doing good, but it's it's serving a purpose and creating a financial return. That's right. Um, yeah, I think I've gotten a lot of support and um, a lot of what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> because it, it would have been easier to, to raise a traditional fund. I had kind of did the hard work of building the background and the experience to, to leverage myself in that way to raise money. And so, like, if you're going to raise money, why are you making this so complicated? Um, but I think more and more people are, are starting to see it. Um, realistically, when for them, it's like when I can show the financial model, um, when I can show how the money actually works um, and they see things like the decrease um, expense load and can kind of understand why I, why I structured it this way. Um, I, I'm getting a lot of support in that direction. And then we're really focused on building partnerships with, uh, with institutional players who do want to do well and do good at the same time uh, that will do things like institutional lines of credit for the nonprofit, um, things that are creative vehicles that, um, that they can leverage as well. Um, so we've had conversations with quite a few of the big uh, bigger guys that we're working on. That's 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 good to hear, and also not that surprising because again, if, if for them it is sort of a, a spreadsheet game, you know, and how can you make return? If you can just if you can make return, and you you sort of have a known quantity or entity that you're dealing with, and you know that trust and rapport that's developed over over time that for you sure. can then leverage into the nonprofit. Um, so. Where can people find you online to learn more about these things? Yeah, so uh, havenhome.org is uh, the nonprofit's website. Realtyhaven.com is uh, the for-profit side. Um, and Realty Haven uh, and Rent Haven all do uh, traditional real estate stuff. I have a couple of traditional agents and, uh, and that on that side. On the management side, we really focus on uh, affordable housing. We're doing, we'll be doing quite a few LIHTC projects this year, um, so some multifamily uh, affordable development projects too. Hey, thanks for sitting down yeah. and, and explaining some of this stuff. I know that that some of these um, things were a little technical in nature, but I think it's it's sort of again, it's it's the age-old story of money and people and expectations yeah. and, and how you kind of rearrange those those kind of things to to do something productive. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having for, me. Yeah, thanks for coming on.